Welcome everyone to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get into it today, I want to please urge you, if you are listening right now, to rate and review this show on Apple's podcast app, and also go to my YouTube channel that you can find by searching my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube. There you'll find every episode in video version as well as smaller clips and highlights, and please make sure you subscribe to the channel. I also want to link you to my website, felix-levine.com. There you can find all information about myself and the show, all episodes in both video and audio formats, photos from every recording, and a whole lot more. If you're a sponsor or a fan looking to get in touch with me, you have all my contact information there handy. I also want to give a huge shout out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. All of U.S. Wellness Meats' beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options. All their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. When you use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, you'll receive 15% off your next order at uswellnessmeets.com. Go check it out today. And my next guest, he is the lead figure in the amazing documentary, The 7-5. He is one of the most notorious, if not the most notorious, corrupt cop of all time. Please welcome Michael Dowd. And we're live. I'm here with uh, Mike Dowd. I am uh, super excited to have you on my show. Um, we did a Johnny and Gene show with uh, John A. Light and Gene Barillo a few weeks back, but uh, to have you on my show is uh, really an honor, and I'm uh, super happy to have you, so thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So I told you a few seconds ago, uh, I like to ask my guests if there's a little tidbit, a little something that the world doesn't already know about Mike Dowd. There's a lot out there on you, so... Uh, you could think of something. Yeah, well, I gave it some thought as you, as you posed the question. And, you know, generally you'd like to go back to your childhood because everybody knows uh, things about you as an adult, you know, because those are the things we share quite often. But I guess, you know, if I go back to my childhood, um, a lot of people don't know that I – I mean, but they may know it, but they probably don't know exactly. I, I was an avid baseball guy, okay? And you can imagine now with this COVID thing going yeah. on, you know, I miss, I miss it. And uh, so when I was a young kid, I was really, really good. And uh, they came to me and they asked me to switch from pitcher to catcher. Hmm. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm the pitcher. Now you want me to go behind the plate and get and catch and be a catcher? And I, I didn't understand. I was mm. young. You know, they actually came to my house. I like to sit down with my father and myself and discuss it. You know, like, that's pretty big, right? <laughs> like, was I that good? You know, uh, maybe not. But, but the, the reality was they... they I didn't know back then, but they wanted someone who had the skill level to be able to catch poorly thrown 
baseballs. <laughs> and of course, I'm thinking, oh, I want to be a pitcher. That's what, or a shortstop, right? Yeah. It was either pitcher or shortstop. And uh, so, uh, of course, I turned down the position of catcher. <laughs> and uh, I got with, and back then it was like a single A, double A, triple A as you went up in age. And I went from single A, double A, triple A, and the triple A team wanted me to be the catcher. And then the, but then they offered me a, a jump up into the major leagues. So I, you know, being a greedy young kid, like you know, some of my attributes have a little bit of greed in them, I guess. <laughs> I just rather than decide to stay with the triple A team and 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 learn the position of catcher and and be and be skilled enough to handle it, which I was, I ended up on a major league team back then, which was one step up from where I was at, and I was horrible. You know, right. It was like the worst decision I ever made in baseball, and it sort of set me back physically, mentally, and emotionally, you know, because I thought I thought I was really all that, and then these guys were throwing the ball past me like I was standing still. And so, and it was, I was a, one of those late bloomers, so by the time uh, my physical abilities caught up with my natural flow of physical, my physical abilities opposed to my physical growth spurt, it was like a year and a half behind. So it always left me not secure. Like mm. I always felt a little insecure. Uh, and my skill level was always there, but the speed wasn't there because I wasn't physically strong. My physical strength wasn't there yet to compete with the same guys of my level. So it left you always like um, feeling insecure. And, and that's part of my development process. I'm still a little insecure, by the way, <laughs> and immature. <laughs> Probably a lot more immature than insecure. Yeah. <laughs> was your was your dream growing up always to be a baseball player? Yeah, well, I was. Uh, I um I grew up uh, following the Mets back then because the Mets became with Tom Seaver, Gary Gentry, Nolan Ryan. They had the best baseball team, pretty much, in the era, and uh, they were they were good enough to go to the World Series twice within a three or four year span and, and come close at other times. So, and I was the kid that watched every pitch of every game. Like my brothers, because we all played ball. My brothers were outside calling me to play because I was half the team, I guess, whatever. You know, you think <laughs> you're so important. But the reality was that I wouldn't miss a, like I watch a whole double header. Wow. Like, which, you know, it's like five hours, yeah. six hours of baseball. Then back then they had an hour break in between games. So I'd be sitting there waiting for the next pitch to come for the, so I was really enthralled and uh, with baseball. And, and then you had the 69 Mets, the 69 Rangers, the 69 Jets, and the 69 Knicks, all in the championships. The only ones who didn't win were the, uh, well, the Rangers, and I had to wait till I was in prison for the Rangers to win, which I think that made the movie. Yeah. <laughs> At least the Rangers won the cup. Yeah, so. Do you have any any regrets that you know you didn't maybe ma make it as you, if you will, or that you didn't do X or Y when you were younger to you know get on that path a well, little bit you more? Know, I had gone to college as a, um, <clears throat> to be an accountant, and um, go figure, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, what the a Something's wrong here, right? Something with this picture. I want to count money. I want to take money. I don't know what happened. But, you know, I, obviously growing up one of seven children in a household where your father was constantly working uh, two and three and four jobs, you know, it, it, it ingrained in me uh, the desire and, and, and the necessity of financial security. And mm. one of the things we talked about before we came on air here right. was that I'm still a little financially insecure with um, maybe reach stepping out and start my own podcast and spending money like that, so it's one of those attributes that I still deal with today, or character defects, let's call it. Right? Is it is it also hard for you, I guess, in a lot of ways, to know that you know back when during your prime time of uh, all the activity that we'll get into later, 
that you were making such easy money, so much of it, and it was illegitimate, yeah, but, you know, now, you know, you come out of jail and you have to find ways to do things legally, and, you know, is that hard to, to know that money doesn't come as quick or things don't happen as quickly as, as you once were accustomed to? No. <laughs> no, because there's consequences for that money, right. you know, and, uh, you know, that's now in a in a 40-something-year-old man's mind right. after he lost, uh, you know, so, so still being an accountant, a mathematician in my head, I sat in prison for over 12 years, and then I spent five years on parole, supervised release, whatever they want to call it. And I, if you do the math, if I just did the right thing for those 12 years that I didn't have street time, I would have been light years ahead of where I was wow. doing all the you know, corruption and the acts of uh, illicit drug trade and stuff like that. And do you think the fact that when you talk about like greedy or or wanting a little bit more money, it came from your childhood and not, you know, always having that much growing up? I mean, once, you know, did you always tell yourself when you were younger that you wanted to make all this money? Was it all about money? Was it all about, for you in your head, what was your future professional well, life so, supposed so to Well, so at serve? 11 years old, I had a penny saver route, Okay. <laughs> Back that you, uh, most people today don't have any like, clue what the penny saver route is. I, I made like seven dollars a week on my penny saver route. So at eleven years old, and then I went on to what they called the Long Island Press. People don't know there was a newspaper called the Long Island Press. Okay, so I delivered that. I was up to like eleven or twelve dollars a week with that one, and you know, so I always had the the drive and desire to get to earn. Right. And, and um, of course, as I got older, I didn't want to do so much work. I mean. <laughs> Loading the papers on a bike and driving in the rain, sleet and snow was, you know, wasn't fun, but you did it, you know, for the money. And uh, I, one time, I just a short story, I, I, uh, I had a paper, the paper route, the Long Island Press, and no one even got the Long Island Press, okay? I had to drive like six miles from one end of the route to the other. No one even wanted, they, they used to use the paper for back then, you know, you were taught to hit your dog. To, to discipline your dog, they used the Long Island Press, okay? It was perfectly wrapped and, and rolled for that. So my newspaper was used for people to smack their dog when they did wrong, because you don't use your hand, right? Because it's, it's, it, the dog get, learns fear. But when he sees that newspaper, he knows he's in trouble. So here I am delivering the one newspaper that's perfectly designed for spanking dogs back in the day. And who do you think hates me the most? It's the goddamn dogs in everybody's house. <laughs> I'm dropping off the, the stick that's beating them. You know, it's just crazy. So fate, as fate would have it, I just turned 16. I still have my paper out because I, I haven't been able to get a, you don't get a job till you, till, you get, till you turn 16. I guess you can get working papers, whatever. I don't know all the rules, but, uh, so, but I, I had got my driver's license, but I was still doing a paper out. This is fucking strange, right? I'm 16, I got a driver's license, but I'm still doing a paper out to put gas in my car. <laughs> But I'm not driving uh, uh, my car during the paper route because it's not really efficient, right? Mm. You got to get out of a car, put the paper yeah. in the thing. You can't just throw it on people's lawns like they do today. Anyway, so I got attacked by a dog, a shepherd. And um, this is one of the biggest uh, uh, moments in my life because I thought I was blind. The dog attacked me and mauled me and was like chewing on me, like trying to like swallow me down or something. I don't know what the hell it was doing, you know? Trying to make a meal out of me. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> I want to save a lot of people some aggravation, maybe, but <laughs> long story short, it was a horrific experience, and I still at times have nightmares of that attack really? from when I was 16 years old. Wow. Now, less and less, you know. Now I'll have one tonight, now that I mentioned it, you know. It's like talking about the police world. Yeah. When I, I go to sleep tonight, I'll, I'll can't find my gun. I don't know where it is, you know. Or I'll be standing there naked in roll call. Please don't analyze my dreams. <laughs> like, where's my stuff, <laughs> you know. So, so I'm also curious, uh, you know, 
as as a child, did, were you uh, you know, because now people, everyone's gonna have an opinion about you. Always, you know, he's this, he's that, he's whatever. But um, you know, as a child, were you were you were you a you know happy kind of stable child, if you will? Were you good in school? Were you? Uh, I was a, I was a mo- good student. Moral. I was a good student. I had good morals. My parents were, were you know, well balanced. Right. Um, we were good Catholic kids. We went to school. Uh, school. <laughs> we went to church on Sunday and uh, and. Uh, <clears throat> Confession once, you know, once a month, and you know, we did all the things that Catholic kids do when they grow up. My, uh, <clears throat> we had each other as brothers. So I mean, and I was like, I was like the family, I was the leader of the family. Hmm. Like my other brothers may argue with you, but you know, I, I was the one. Like I was the most responsible one in the family. So a lot of that, the family um, responsibility was put on me. Like my older brother, he's mentally uh, slow developing. My second brother above me who should have been considered slow mentally developing, <laughs> but he was more like, eh, Michael's got it. <laughs> you know, like, like anything responsible he left on me. You know, he would take my change and, sh- and shit like that, and he would go s- buy beer with it, and I'd be fighting with my brother over it. Was, back then it was 99 cents for a six-pack. You know, so he'd, he'd stake, tell four quarters <laughs> of my paper route money and uh, go buy himself a six-pack, and I'm like, what the hell's going on here? You know? right. My money kept going down while I thought it was going up. You know, I'd be counting every week, like a whole jar. So, at what point were you like, okay, this police thing seems a little interesting. I want to go into this. So, uh, you know, know, we make decisions, right? You know, we don't know. We're young. We make decisions. We don't know how it's going to turn out, right? So, when I was in college, I... um, all the social, social, the civil service tests came up, fire department, police department, and uh, I guess corrections and stuff. But I, I, I took the fire department and the police department test as, as like a safety valve in case my accounting career didn't go so well. And then in the midst of it, you know, I had a girlfriend that I was dating at that time for three or four years. And, you know, you, you start making plans. Maybe I should get married. You know, back then in 2021, right. you, you made plans to get married. You know, it was no joke. You know, not like today, 35, 40, they talk about getting married. <laughs> Which is probably the smarter thing. Yeah. Any, any, so, so like, you know, you had a relationship and I wanted to be able to provide in a relationship because that's what men do. They provide, you know. And so all the burden on me was to make a decision to keep the relationship. Because when you're in a relationship for three or four years, you know, it's got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> sure. It's got to go somewhere. <laughs> so it, you know, it was going. It was going real good. Anyway, so I decided, you know, I, I actually need a job to keep mm-hmm. this relationship going now, right? So I ended up uh, taking the test and getting called. And, you know, in the middle of college, and I would be called out on every Thursday to go to uh, Manhattan for some kind of testing and background investigations and things of that nature, psychological exam, which I passed, by the way. Some people might be surprised. I lied. I lied. I lied. I fucking lied. I'm not going to lie. I lied. (laughs) Do you love flowers? Do you like flowers? Do you think of flowers? I mean, the questions they ask. That's insane. Yeah. How how much do you like flowers? Could you live without flowers? What do they think that's going to accomplish? Well, they're trying to see a a variation of, Uh. of how extreme you would be. So and, and you so pass. I figured it out. Uh, I love flowers. Now I like flowers. Mm. You know, so like if you love this and you love that, you hate this and you hate that. Well, then you're, you're too not. Vol- you're, too, you're, yeah, you're not stable. Huh. No, I like flowers. Yeah. I don't love them. <laughs> I like pizza. I don't love. Oh, I love pizza. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's fucking questions. Yeah, sixteen hundred questions. You know. Anyway, so I figured that out real quick, and um, so <laughs> we. Uh, 
so the test came and I took it and and like I said I wanted to move forward in my relationship and and, and you need to have a job to have a relationship right. it seems I, I I don't know some people seem to not have to have yeah. a job they just have relationships I, I don't know but to, back then you needed a job and a car to have a relationship mm-hmm. especially on Long Island yeah. the city you could just jump at a, a couple of quarters on the subway back then but uh, you needed a job and, and a car so I had I had to get the I had the car I needed a job to keep the car and the relationship so I took the police test and. Um, it wasn't a great big passion of mine, but once I got into it and I started to learn, you know, uh, about policing and in the academy, which you really don't learn much. You know, you just learn the rules and regulations not to do. You learn the things not to do. Mm. You know, don't do this, don't do that. You know, don't do this and don't do that. Which, which you know, I, I, personally, I, I, we should all start out in jail. Okay, really? we should all start out in jail. Why do you say that? Because then you'll understand what it's like, what you're doing to somebody else. Mm. That, that's one of the lessons that I would say is m- more profound that I learned uh, than, than, than than actually the academy itself and, and 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 everything else, you know. But so I took the test, I took the job, and I was you know 21 years old. I, I like you, I, I, I didn't right. even shave yet, you know. <laughs> I actually shaved this morning. <laughs> okay. I'm a little bit. Yeah, I'm yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. I barely shaved, and in fact, when I did, no one noticed it. So uh, so here I was, a young you know wiry just young developing man now and uh, took the police job. I, I did well enough on everything. I was still physically inclined so the academy wasn't physically uh, demanding on me. And um, and you end up in the street, you know, with a badge and a gun on your hip. Did you feel like it was almost too much responsibility too young? Yes. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, they changed it after me. <laughs> they changed it after the commission hearings. They made it 22, I think, now. Yeah, but still. But know, but, what but, age do you well, feel well, like you talk about been 20 right. to 22 can be a significant right, difference in both physical and mental and emotional development at that right. period. You know, so they did change that to, I think, 22. But they could have changed it back now. I don't know. But what, right when you went in, you had every intention of being, quote, unquote, a good cop. Of course. Yes, absolutely. And then we talk about that first, maybe that, that hint of, like, hold on. There's a little something. I mean, you you know, for people who haven't watched the Seven Five right. or, or listened to other things, there's a moment in there that you know you can talk about or not. Um, first of all, go and watch them, the Seven Five if you haven't. Uh, yeah, it's not on Netflix anymore. I, don't know. I think it's on Amazon IFC. Is it? Or, I don't even know. That's IFC, where I watched it. IFC. Yeah, I watched it. Did own it for some. Period yeah, I don't of time. know what it was. I don't know. And then they have it on you, porn. No, <laughs> no, that's not that. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's YouTube. YouTube, I guess. I don't, I don't even know. know what it is. I don't know. But uh, the seven five doc. It's very well done, and, it and it's actually it's fairly accurate. You know, overall, it's right. fairly accurate. What, what isn't accurate about it? Uh, the ending with the the kidnap situation with the uh, Hispanic woman and the drugs and okay. stuff like that. It's skewered a little bit. Okay. So, from their perspective, it might be accurate, but not from mine. Right. We all have different. You know, <laughs> we all have different viewpoints here. <laughs> so so talk to me about that first time, that first glimpse, you know, for the people who didn't watch it of, okay, wait, hold on. There's something here that I can be, you know, it, that was bringing you a little bit to the bad cop side. Okay, so to, like anything else, it just doesn't just happen. Right. You know, there's a series of things. Like, first of all, in the academy, I realized that you have to look out for each other, right? So if, if something happened to you, let's say, it, like in the academy, I ended up signing a, a Lying in a statement that I I I, I saw this I, I I broke a guy's hand sitting next to me like he broke his finger or something and, and so I had to lie for his benefit and tell uh, tell the story oh, what the hell am I doing with this my mask huh it's my mask uh, yeah patriotic there you go yeah. I shouldn't put it on it because it could be COVID yeah. anyway so um 
Yeah, so I had to lie for a friend of mine in the police academy, and, and it's like I was almost compelled to do so because he's my buddy. What are you going to do with your buddy? You know, we, we go to the academy together. We sit next to each other. Mm. We train together. And he wanted me to fill out a form that he injured himself uh, uh, right here in the, in the academy classroom. So I did it. And, you know, so I, I, it bothered me. It's, clearly, I still remember it today. It was, you know, so insignificant, but it really wasn't, you know. I, I realized then that it was, it, was, it was something that I was doing was not right. And... and How'd that make you feel? What, I, I, what were you thinking about? Well, it still bothers me today that I did it, but the reality was that I, I, I was willing to do something that wasn't appropriate or correct in order to maintain a friendship. Mm. And that's sort of like you're asking your friend to lie for you. you know? That's mm. not really good, right? <laughs> Is it? I, I mean, I don't know. Do you feel like you're almost too loyal in that sense? Or you well, are... I am. A, I, uh, yeah, that's, that's part of my, one of my character defects. Like if I see something wrong. but you See that as a defect. Yeah, because I, I feel the need to have you like me more than I have feel the need to be right, to do the mm. right thing sometimes. And, and that can be problematic in society right. because I should call you out on your shit rather than saying, rather than saying okay, I'm willing to back you up. Mm. You know, that's part of, right. like, that's, that's where I get lost because, or have gotten lost because if I know it's wrong and it's going to serve some purpose between you and I, then I'm then I had been willing to do so instead of saying, listen, I'm not into that. Ask somebody else. Or really, technically, you're supposed to report that behavior and conduct. Especially in today's environment right. when I'm discussing right. these things, you would say, Oh, that don't you think let's say I was an officer, don't you think, Officer Dad, that you should report that to your superior? Right? Technically I should. And if I don't, actually, I've done something wrong right. by not reporting it, right? So it turns into this whole Megillah. I think we call right. it Megillah. It's a whole show, you know? Gotcha. And uh, so, yeah. So that's one of the things that... Uh, I, so that was early on. And then, you know, there's other stories that you may have heard, like uh, the cops pulled me over while I'm making a car stop. And they want to know what I'm doing making a car stop in their sector. I'm like, well, the guy blew a light in front of us. We followed him. We happened to pull him over here. Whatever the story is. Well, you shouldn't be in our sector. Don't go near our restaurants. Don't go. Near... Oh, hmm. mm. well, something's going on here, yeah. you know. And and then shortly thereafter became the lobster lunch situation, where I told the guy, "I'll let you go. You got you know fifteen hundred dollars in summonses here. Just buy me a lobster lunch, you know." So he left a couple hundred dollars in the car. I split it with my partner and I, and I was like, "That wasn't too difficult." Right. You know, no one got hurt. Were you afraid that you might get caught or something? I was a little like, nervous for a while. I was driving around with the money saying, should I just get rid of it? You know, this is a setup. How could it be a setup? I pulled the guy over. <laughs> yeah. Did you know if of any other people at the time that were doing similar things? I, I, you know, so the answer to that is no. Right. I didn't know. But that doesn't mean they weren't, and it doesn't right. mean that I was not aware that something wasn't adding up. You know, then I started to run into guys that were like, doing a lot of um, automobile recoveries and stuff like that. And like, why does a guy keep recovering automobiles? Right. Hmm. hmm. Maybe he's got something with the automobile, the tow truck guys, you know? Yeah. Things like that. So things like that start to come to a head. And, you know, you start to figure it out because people aren't going to tell you what they're doing, right? Unless they need you right. to, to do it with. And, you know, again, for, for the people who, who didn't watch the documentary, will you talk about then that next step drugs i mean the, the big money right. how that how that kind of comes about and at that point i mean 
What's interesting to me is, you know, even when we talk about your childhood, is like you always, at least it seems like to me, uh, you had this leadership quality. You know, you mm -hmm. went from, you went 21-year-old police officer, and then you all, all of a sudden came to this really a power position. Um, when, you know, when you see all this big money and you see all the opportunities, do you start feeling like you're the top dog? Yeah. You're running shit. Yeah. And yeah, no one could tell me what to do at that point. Like, do you feel like your ego you feel is... like you're God. That's one of the words yeah. I use. But you feel so impervious. Like no one could, who could tell you something when you're 20 something years old, you got money, you got uh, recognition, you, 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 you got four homes, you got a condo on the ocean. You know, you're 25, 26, 27 years old. But where other police officers like, wait, hold on. The guy's 25, he's got four houses, yeah. way too nice car, way too much money. Right. Were they suspicious? I mean, oh, yeah. ev and were you afraid of, of getting caught at that point? No. I wasn't afraid of getting caught. I, I, I was afraid that too many guys would be doing it. Why? Why? Yeah, why? why is well, because it doesn't work then. Because how significant are you right. if there's 25, 35, 40 guys doing the same thing? So you were worried that you weren't, you were, that more people were going to do it and then it was going to start to blow, and it was going to blow everybody's up gonna, Then the gig's up then, right? Everybody's right. going to know that something's really seriously going on. So you try to maintain a level of low profile, but, you know, pulling a Corvette into the station house isn't quite... Uh, Parking in the lieutenant's, yeah, in the lieutenant's spot. spot. Isn't quite, well, he pissed me off, <laughs> so he deserved that. Yeah, there was a reason for that, by the way. There was a, there's a, there's a, and you may have heard it from other... I did it because he was trying to bang my girlfriend. And I thought, at this point, I, I was done. I was done. Like, I was done when I drove that car into the station house. How old were you then? I, I would say 26, 27. Something like that. And when you say done, what did you think? Maybe I was done? twenty-eight. No, twenty-six. Twenty-six. Twenty-seven. When you say you were done, what do you? What did that look like? To you? Like you were. Gonna... I, I I wanted it to end. What did you want to end? I just wanted all of it to end. Like not my life, just the whole mental, emotional game. I was having, my relationship was in ruin. My marriage. Uh, my <laughs> this girl I was dating was a very nice, you know, person. Uh, she, you know. It, it, things were, I just wasn't in the right place. And I, and I thought that if living under the pressure of not getting caught is like worse than being caught to me. Mm. Because when is it going to happen? Like the 7 7 had just gotten busted, uh, like probably six months or a year, about six months. And, and then here I am, this all out there. Everybody knows I'm up to something. Right. You know, guys are begging to get a piece of what I'm doing, like rookies. And I'm like, this isn't looking good. Uh, my life is not where I want it to be. Uh, I'm miserable. Um, and I figured if I pulled the car into the lieutenant's spot, one, he'd stop trying to bang my girlfriend, and two, if they wanted me, they got me. Oh. Like, here I am. And what that did, honestly, that was actually the beginning of the end, even though it may have started a little bit before that. What happened was then they, that same lieutenant made four or five internal affairs complaints against me in successive weeks. And it was sort of, sort of a very weak complaint. Uh, Officer Dowd was witnessed selling cocaine out of a small red car. Now, who the fuck doesn't know what a Corvette looks like? It's like <laughs> he was watching from a distance through foggy glasses. Yeah. I mean, if you read the report, yeah. a small red car. How about a Corvette? <laughs> like, and one, and two, did you really ever see me selling cocaine? Yeah. The answer is no. Okay, mm. I wasn't. Not out of a red Corvette. 
And so that's all a bunch of bullshit, you know? Uh, so, but, but what it did was by making the allegations and the complaints, it brought outside departmental, not, you know, not internal, but outside department people to look at me in internal affairs. So it's not precinct internally. The precinct guy made the complaint, but it was other people watching now from the outside, which brought in the investigator that followed me for three or four years, who actually ended up following me down to the Carolinas. I got in the car one day to go see my grandmother in Florida to bring all their stuff. Uh, you know, they had switched their living location down to Florida. And um, so one day my, I met my cousin my, and my brother. We jumped in a car, took my grandfather's car. They thought, this guy doesn't know he's going for a ride. We, we get in the car. We don't announce where we're going. We, uh, back then, you didn't like, you know, text everybody. They weren't like, you know, reading your text messages. Oh, you're going here. We got in the car. We left uh, Brooklyn, headed over the bridge in Staten Island. We're being tailed the whole time by this guy. <laughs> All the way down to four. Well, well, I think he followed us to the Carolinas. There you go. He, <laughs> and he realized something's not fucking going right here. <laughs> so we went all the way to Toppin Springs, Florida with the car. And I, he followed us at least to Carolina. Do you feel <laughs> like maybe if you didn't have the Corvette, the four houses, then maybe you had just kept the money somewhere that this all would, you know, that you would have been a little bit in better shape? Um, do you feel like you no, gave it No, I think like I probably would have been away? worse because I would have had the money in my hand. And I probably would have acted like a bigger fool because I'd be young and dumb. I would have been spending that money like uh, George Washington, just printing bills right. or something, you know? And uh, so that's why I invested it. You know, there you go. The accountant yeah. is, you know, insecure, financially insecure. Uh, uh, so um, I, I thought it was wise enough to invest it. Um, and, you know, being an accountant student, I had a way of covering it, you know, finding how to make it look financially feasible. Uh, the extra money that I was dealing with, so um, yeah, it was it was, a, it was it was almost brilliant. <laughs> it was almost, <laughs> it was almost brilliant when for a twenty-something-year-old idiot. <laughs> when you say financially insecure, was it more the insecurity of not having money or not looking like you have so like you or just wanting a lot of money, or was it you know I mean what is it about the you know being financially insecure that that really motivated you to 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 do this really? Well, you know, it's probably a moment in my childhood where realizing that my dad was going to work four or five different, like, like he had basically had four different jobs at one time to pay the bills. And he and I would always have conversations and he would always say, you know, son, I want you to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or something like that, you know. And then, and then uh, it was always ingrained in me to mm -hmm. earn more, to be financially stable. I mean, I'm talking at eight, nine, ten years old. So it created a different vision of me of the world and I didn't know that you could actually go earn money like I thought you you know you, like like by that I mean like you just get out and you get money you, you have to you have to have a skill right you, know? you just don't show up and you start earning so at a young age I was making wheelbarrows like people use planters like in front of their house so I would take um, create shipping crates um, that shipping crate would and I would make wheelbarrows and, and buy, buy a wheel at like, uh, back then it was, I think, Pergaments or one of those stores, or Rickles. They had the, and you would buy, a, I'd buy a wheelbarrow wheel, a wooden one, and then make these little wooden wheelbarrow planters so people would put on their front lawns. And, you know, so I made, you know, like one summer, I made like three, four hundred dollars putting them together and making them, building them myself. So I was always financially concerned mm. and it never went away. Uh, and still today I'm uh, financially concerned, uh, uh, but that's for other reasons. You know, it's difficult getting a job. You know, when you show up on your resume, there's a 12-year blank spot, you know. You know, police officer, 12 years, nothing. And yeah. then, yeah. then what'd you do, you know? That's why I have a lot of understanding 
about the effects of the criminal justice system, quote unquote, mm. justice, just us, whatever you want to call it. When you come out of prison, it's really difficult. You right. know? And if I didn't have the family support that I had, I'd be in prison still, probably back and forth, back and forth, you know, petty shit or, or something major, you know. But that's and that for me is interesting too because you know when 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 I listen to you talk, you sound. I mean, you're very obviously you're very savvy. You know, you know how how things work, and you know it's now imagine for those people who are uneducated who don't know and they get out of jail and they they're kind of lost. I mean, for you talk about uh, since coming out of jail, you talk about the struggles. We talk about those daily struggles on especially you have a big name and you know people can look you up and they can they can literally watch a whole documentary about right. everything that happened uh you know what really has that experience been like and you know finding a new job making money doing things legitimately being you know always on a short leash you know because you do one thing you're back you're right oh, back yeah. in there yeah it's, uh, you know so, so overall it's it's it's, an, it's a nerve-wracking feeling and i don't know so when I say I don't know how people do it because I know how I did it and it wasn't easy. Uh, and I had a decent start, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of guys come home and their parents have already, if they, ha if, they ha if they have a set of parents like that are still there or if they're still in touch, you know, some people have their, their aunt or their uncle and if their parents are either dead or in prison or just not, they burnt that bridge mm -hmm. so much that the people don't, can't do much more for them. You know, listen, everybody has to be take responsibility for their own actions. So part of this, the whole process of coming home from doing time is one, you have to recognize what you did wrong and make some changes in that behavior. And two, you have to become a trusted person again in order for people to trust you. So you have to earn that trust back. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a long, difficult process. For me, for, for my desire would be that it wouldn't be so long and difficult because if it were not, so difficult, then people would be have much more chance of being successful when they got out. For example, when I was in prison, I wanted to learn HVAC. Don't ask me specifically why. I mean, I just thought it was a good career. Uh, you know, did I have a great big passion to learn about air conditioning? Not really, okay? But I thought that that would be a trade skill that I could do and that it wouldn't be that difficult, let's say. But it's more an intelligent and lightly physically skilled thing that because I didn't, didn't want to be climbing buildings and knocking walls down my whole life. So when I applied to, to get into that program, it was difficult in prison to even get into it because mm. there was like a waiting list for that. And then, then to actually get certified, you wouldn't actually get certified. So you'd have to come out and do the courses all over again. So it wasn't this process of, prison to work mm. that I would want for people like like if I if I went from prison and, and into an apprenticeship role somewhere where I was getting some decent money to, 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 to hands-on learn or show my skill level to a trained technician then I could see you can move more quickly I mean when you're 40 something years old right. you can't make nine dollars an hour for very long and and, and, and be, a, be, be a responsible father again maybe a relationship whatever it be uh, you know your 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 wife comes back in your life or a new girlfriend a car owner a apartment rent payer or, or homeowner all those things are the dreams that you have but when you started out at nine dollars an hour and you just came home from prison life was easier in prison right life was easier in prison now don't get me wrong you love the freedom but it's scary and right. it's and it's a little 
It's a, it's just uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable adjustment. Did you think a lot when, during your time in prison about what you would do when you get out? I mean, was it all? Was it? I mean, is nerve wracking in a sense. To... Right. Well, yeah, I, yeah. So that goes back to one of my insecurities: is earning and financial. Right. You know. So when I got, so one of the funny stories, and you may, I think, you may have said it on another podcast. You may have heard it. Was I didn't even know how to order a hot dog. Right. Like I went to a hot dog stand. And my brother says, "Get what you want." I'm like. I didn't even know how to say it because in prison you just walked up and they handed you whatever your shit was there and you just walked away and you didn't have to reach in your pocket and pay for anything. And I didn't even know how to order it. So I I just, I wanted a hot dog with sauerkraut or some shit. I don't even know what I wanted. I said, you order it for me. Like, like those, that was a realization of how far off that I was. And, you know, I'm a social guy. I'm gregarious. I'm pretty easy to get along with, I think. Maybe annoying at times if I'm living with you. But the reality is that that it was it was it was a fearful moment, and I, I remember one time uh, wanting to go back to prison. Like during this process, um, it'd be so much easier if I was just in prison. You know, wow. so so that's you know, that's that's pretty heavy. Yeah. A guy who did over twelve years, you know, who the fuck wants to do another day in prison? Do but, you feel like those twelve years went by quickly, or, or, or? Oh, looking back, they did. But every day was lo- the years go quick, the days are long. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, the days are just long because you're doing day by day by day. But the when you look back at the years, like they go relatively quickly. But you know, then you come out, you're 12 years older. Although I think I I weathered well, you know. Yeah. Overall, <laughs> overall, <laughs> I'm starting to catch up now. The gray's coming, yeah, you know. It's okay. Uh, Not too much gray. I'm a little concerned. <laughs> I shaved so you didn't see all the gray. Yeah. <laughs> um, but talk to me also about your time in prison. I mean. You know, on a few other podcasts, you talk about it, but you had a little bit of reputation in there. I mean, people knew who you were, right? Right. Went, right yeah. when you got in. And did you enjoy that? Would you have rather been a low-profile person? I mean, was there issues because you had a higher profile? Well, clearly, you know, being a cop in prison isn't the most yeah. comfortable position to be in. It's the, it's, it's, the, it's the child molesters that are less comfortable, and then it's the cops. You know, so and, and you, who do you end up like? You know, everybody wants to have a, a, a road dog, no matter what, no matter what prison you're in, whether it's life or prison. You know, you want a road dog, someone to you know pal around with, and and, and it's very difficult for for someone because you would get uh, one guy. Prison is very racial. It's it's just racially. It's just that's the way it is. You know, whites go with the whites, blacks go with the blacks, Hispanics go with the Hispanics. We cross mingle in friendships and stuff, but when you hang, you hang with your own race, you know? And it's just the way it is. But the reality is, I was my own, I was my own race, right? <laughs> you know, I was my own race, you know? I was, I, I, okay, let's say, I was blue. Yeah. <laughs> right. and, and that's how people looked at me. You know, whether you were black, Hispanic, or white, or Asian, you looked at me like I was blue. And you really don't know where that fits in, because believe it or not, a lot of guys in prison actually like the police, because they wanted a lot of them wanted to be police at some point in their life, but they made a wrong turn, you know, mm. and they ended up in trouble. So now they got a record, and they could never be police. And or they just love to pick the mind of a cop and see how the cop thinks, which is pretty much just like them, right? right. <laughs> because there's a very fine line between policing and, and and criminal conduct, you know. And you have to think like a criminal if you want to catch one. The problem is when you become the criminal, like yeah. I did, it, a little fucked up, you know. But so so it's. It's a balance, and, and, and um, but for me, it was more like every person that came onto the compound was a potential problem for me because I was a talking point. 
mm. for anybody. Like, so what does that mean? So in prison, everybody wants to have a, a road dog, right? So you're new on a compound, you come on a compound, and there's a guy who needs a friend, mm. or just wants a friend. And that guy will go up to, up to you, yourself, you're new, he'll say, listen, just so you know, see that guy over there walking by himself with the ponytail? I had a ponytail down the back. That, that guy's a New York City cop, just, so, you know, just be aware. Whatever that means or didn't mean, I don't know to them, but now you just gave me information. Like, you're yeah. my friend. You're looking out for me. Like, that's, that's what, you know, that's what it is. So now this guy's got a friend and, not, and everybody off the bus knows that there's a, an ex-New York City cop on the compound. So there's no hiding it. When you were in jail, did you feel like you had disappointed your friends and family? And, you know, um, did you feel ashamed of what you had done? So, over 12 and a half years, you don't, you don't stay in that same spot, right? right? Initially, when you come to prison, you're fighting for your life. So you have very little humility, very little care for what the hell's going on. Mm. You're in there fighting for your life. And I don't necessarily mean physically, but mentally and emotionally, you're, you're fighting for your freedom back. So when you first get arrested, there's some shame, but it's... Like um, a lot of anger is coming out, a lot of um, disappointment in yourself, and anger at the way things are not going the way they should be right now. Right. You know, like like almost like a spoiled child. I need this. I need that. And people are on the outside saying, "Fuck you, you screwed up, not me. I I shouldn't have to suffer because you screwed up. I need you to go put this in the mail. I need you to send me some money from this account of mine that they didn't take yet. You know, things like that. So." The beginning process, it's very, very a selfish time. Mm. And you, you can't show that humility because you're fighting. And then when you finally get sentenced and your time is known, you start to reflect. That's for me. My, right. You start to reflect on what's going on, what's happened, uh, what can I do better, what, you know, what kind of changes do I need to make. So, so for me, I would say anywhere between – so. People ask this question, and, and I'll just shift to it a little bit. They ask, what do you think, when do you think you recognized your, a lot of your character defects and things that you needed to overcome or changes that you need to make? I would say about four or five years in, mm. you, you actually, because you're clearing out, right? Right. I need, I need to, can you take yeah. a moment? I need to blow my nose or something. Go for it. Fucking tissue or something. <laughs> Here, while, while Mike, Michael does that, I'm going to run a quick ad or two for my sponsors, NanoCraft CBD. Athletes come in all shapes and sizes, but they all have one thing in common. Their performance is limited by their recovery time, anxiety, and quality of sleep. That's why thousands of athletes are turning to NanoCraft CBD to improve their game. NanoCraft is the number one CBD for athletes. Whether you're a professional, a weekend warrior, or on the mend from an injury, NanoCraft's broad-spectrum CBD is designed for recovery and performance. NanoCraft contains 0% THC and is used by PGA golfers, UFC fighters, Olympians, and thousands of men and women looking for an advantage in their sport and their life. For a limited time, use promo code FELIX, that's F-E-L-I-X, to get 20% off your order at nanocraftcbd.com. You'll also get a free CBD lip balm with your order if you use that coupon code. That's nanocraftcbd.com. Use promo code FELIX to get 20% off your order. 
and they have also gifted Michael a little goodie bag uh, for you to take home as well. And I also want to give a big shout out to my sponsor, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks with thousands of audiobooks from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Audiobooks are the present and the future, and Audible is by far the best place to get not only all of your favorite audiobooks, podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and a whole lot more. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection and access to daily news digest from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. You can download titles and listen offline anytime and anywhere. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot. Visit audible.com slash Felix or text Felix to 500-500 to get a one-month free trial and one original audiobook on us. Also, right now, you can get, I believe, about 46% off your first four months. Go check it out. Audible.com slash Felix or text Felix to 500-500. And we're back. Michael Dowd. Um, I've, got so, I've, got so mu- I've got so many so many different questions. For me, what's, what's also interesting when I watch the 7-5, um, and I think I had mentioned this uh, actually on the Giant Gene Show, is I'd watch with my girlfriend. And the first thing she had said to me was, when we're watching your trial, or I don't know, it's trial hearing. Testimony. Testimony. Yeah. I've never seen someone so honest, so, you know, candid, so, uh, I mean, it almost felt like the world, when I was watching it, the world stopped, and we were all listening to you. I mean, I wasn't alive at that, time, at that point, but when I'm watching on the documentary, <laughs> when I'm watching on the documentary, it was almost like, holy shit, is he actually saying this stuff? Yeah. When you were going into that, that testimony, yeah. did you have every intention of being fully honest? Did you know it was over at that? I mean, what's going on in your head? You're the man of the moment. Yeah, see, that's funny because I never looked at it that way until I actually saw the documentary. And uh, because you're living it, right? So, like, you may be the best ball player in the world, but you don't know, you know, you just right. know you're hitting home runs or something right. like that, you know? And they give me lots of money. But then when you take a look back at from from a distance and you see the gravity of that, and and the reality is so 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 from what i experienced was i was in i was in lockdown pretty much for for two almost two years so i was in the hole for for about 10 months in isolation and then i was in uh, mcc new york which is still semi lockdown you were just in a cage basically you know for the next 14 months or so and so when i came out and did this testimony actually no when I did the testimony, I was—I had just come out of the hole about a month, so to get, I had—they had to transport me like through society, you know, <laughs> the world, and it, it wasn't very far. But to be able to move my feet in a in a free society again, even though I was chained, right. it was just an experience that was like really all my sensations, uh, you know, all, all the um, outside world was like. It was an exciting moment for me uh, in that respect because I, I got to see the world again. Right. So I had no intentions on saying anything but the truth in that hearing because one, it could be used against me if I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want that to happen. And two, um, it was a way to it was a way to say, this is what happened. I'm sorry that it did, but I'm not here to lie to you. Uh, 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 and this way, it could be completely understood and that there's no, you know, soft foot here. I'm, I'm trying to be direct and honest and I'm not trying to soften the blow here. Uh, 
and my sentencing judge was going to see this testimony. One of the problems that I found out was that I was a little too honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the things that I said, while my judge, uh, her name was Kimba Wood, she, she essentially said she didn't use it against me, but she brought it up. So, uh, and, and it's one of those things that I've said on, on there. It was about the woman and, and, and the money that was under the Bible, and I still live with that every day. If I could give them the money back right now, if I, if I, if I could find them, I certainly would give them the money back, you know, with interest at this point, because uh, I feel felt really bad about that. And a lot of people always hinge upon that. You would really, not that you took, you took it from this innocent person. Well, the reality is, yes, I was bad at that moment. That was the, that was the worst thing I really believe that I ever did. Uh, but, but, but that's like rationalizing, right? Because the first thing I did was wrong, right? So that was just another one of the things that I did was wrong. Um, so I've learned that today that, you know, you can justify and rationalize anything, but the reality is when you're wrong, you're wrong, right. you know? So they were all equally bad. Just they, this thing seemed to be the worst thing when I took that money from that, those individuals. And, and really, what people don't realize, and I'm not trying to deflect here and put blame on anybody else, but Kenny Urell had threatened to quit, just threatened to leave my partnership then, just before that happened. Because he thought I was setting him up. I missed eleven thousand dollars in someone's uh, um, travel case or something like that, and uh, I actually went in the travel case and I missed it. And uh, so, and then Kenny found eleven hundred dollars of cash on a, on a shelf. I said, "Kenny, we're not here to take someone's eleven hundred dollars. We're here for looking for some real drug money." And then we went outside the house, and um, he he was like, "You're trying to set me up and all this other shit." I said, "What the fuck are you talking about?" He said, the guy came in and found $10,000 more in, a, in, his, in his suitcase. I said, and? He says, you, you had that suitcase in your hand, and, 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 you sh and you should have known that the money. I said, it was a little knot. I was looking for a bag of money, not a knot, like someone's little, you know, someone's little personal stash. I'm looking for a, a real drug dealer's money, yeah. not some fucking, you and me were saving a couple hundred. We're, you know, we're hiding it from our wife or so, or, or, or even just uh, we didn't want to put it in the bank, whatever. The guy had a knot of like 10 grand, but that's about 10 grand, right? That's about 10 grand, hundreds. And I missed it. So he thought I was setting him up, and he threatened to never work with me again. Take me back to the station house. We're not working together. And within three or four minutes, we got another call for another burglary, and that's, that's why I clipped some money from this one, because I wanted to regain his trust. See, what did I tell you? Loyalty to a fault. Uh, you know, I, I, people pleaser. I, I, you know, one of my character defects is I want everybody to like me, you know? Here I, I should have, the, the best thing I could have done was have him drop me back at the station house and never work with him again at that point, you know? But, but then you don't have the 7-5 documentary. You know. Did you ever think when you first, could you have ever imagined, I tell a young 21-year-old Michael Dodd when he enters the police force, in 2014 you're gonna have a documentary about being one of the most notorious crooked cops of all time. <laughs> that could never have, you know, yeah. What, what would he have said? <laughs> Um, that you're out of your fucking mind. I mean, one thing you realize fairly quickly when you join the police force, in, let's say in New York City, that you're really not that important, by the way. Mm. You're, and, and, and even more so after you go to prison. <laughs> you realize how, how totally unimportant you are. Mm. You know, I used, to, I used to, so when, like, you know, one of those things when the, the coach came to my house, right? And your son is a really good athlete. It's all connected. Yeah, it's like <laughs> your son's a really good athlete. We want to we want to put him be behind the plate to catch. And I'm like, what are you fucking crazy? I'm a pitcher. Mm -hmm. But the same thing when you you know, I was important. I got, 
But then when I went to the major leagues, I was I sucked. Right. <laughs> I, I paid two, three innings a game if I if lucky. Going from you know now I'm in the police academy, you know, and I, I think I'm important, and everybody else is is as important as me. And then and then you graduate the academy, and you're just one of 3,800 men that graduated women that graduated that that day. You're no, like you're so insignificant. Right. And you're wow, you made a really good arrest. I made a rape arrest. I made an armed robbery on foot. I made some really good arrests in my first six months to a year in the 7-5, I should say, not in the, in the other place. I was, in, I was in Queens for a while doing my training. As soon as I got to the 7-5, I made some really, really good, high-quality arrests, guns, drugs, rapes, whatever, and um, murders. And uh, it's really not a big deal. Like, no one gives a fuck, you know? So you're like, you know, here I am, you know, Hey, how am I doing, everybody? Not, you know, no one gives a fuck. And that's what happens. No one cares. So it's part of your insecurities come back again. Didn't I just make the best arrest, like, ever? Mm. Well, not really. Someone else did it yesterday, too. So you find out how insignificant you are. And then when you walk in the track in prison, and you're going, hmm, yeah. my brother's got two kids. He got married and divorced. My other brother got two kids. He's got married and divorced. You know, you go down the list, like, who do I think I am? Right. I'm not that important. I'm walking a track in prison. And everybody else is still doing okay. Like, I thought I ran shit. Right. You run nothing, really. Do you wish almost, I mean, how does it, how does it work that you were, did you choose to be assigned uh, in the 7-5? Or how's that, how's that process? And do you almost wish you had been in a different precinct? Well, it doesn't matter because at some point when you make that decision, like, so, so when I, a lot of times I forget some of the process. When I was in the training academy, when I was training in the in the in the street, I was trained by older detectives, and they sort of they sort of let me know that it isn't what you think, kid. You know, so you know that altruistic. I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna fight. You know, fight the bad and win the good war. They're like, listen, dude. You know, the last guy that 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 that, that was trying to be a good cop that turned in cops for doing something wrong, he ended up falling over a railing in a snowstorm. Wait a minute. Falling over a railing in a snow. How do you fall over a four-foot railing in a snowstorm to your death? Hmm. <laughs> so these are the things you're hearing. Mm. You're like, you're saying, ah, I'm trying to figure this out. And wait a minute. So, so, and you'd be surprised how easily the mind can be manipulated by people that you hold in esteem, right? right? If you hold people high in esteem and you, wow, this guy's really, he's talented. I want to be like him. And then all of a sudden you're hearing these things. I'll go go in that thing and come out with a get us get us a couple cold ones. Cold ones, you know. In my era, when someone said get some cold ones, they meant beer. Yeah. I don't know what they mean today, but that's what they meant when I was out there. So they were testing you. There always was there always were tests put in front of you, and I usually passed most of them. You know. So and if I didn't, I certainly straightened out quick enough to know. Okay, well that's not don't do that. You know. So the so the process is now I'm in Queens and I get transferred. Now, don't forget, I was in Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, which, by the way, was the cocaine capital of, of the United States at that time wow. because all the planes came in from around the world, mm. and that's where all the, most of it was coming through. And uh, it was called Little Columbia, and back then the Colombians were basically running the trade and they were flying in and out airports and stuff. And Corona, Elmhurst, Jackson Heights was a major hub for their distribution. So... Then I ended up in Brooklyn where it actually gets street 
street delivery, right? Right. right. Because Queens would have the kilos, and Brooklyn had the uh, the deliveries in the bodegas and all these different places that were involved in distributing, you know, volume of cocaine, but not necessarily kilos, but like broken down kilos. How did you learn about that whole process of the drug distribution? Did you know about it before? Did you kind of learn on you, the go? You walk into it. You don't really know. You know, mm. you don't really know. I mean, no one taught you. Like, that's that's one of the things. Like, one of the things about the police department back then, they didn't teach you how operations were because I guess they didn't want you to know or they thought that it was not necessary for you to know. But the reality is, I guess, so... In many police departments, they have specialized narcotics units and stuff that would know that, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm a patrolman handling family disputes, you know, coming across a, a, a cachet of drugs, you know, that's how a patrolman runs into and, 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 and learns on his feet. Like, wait a minute, you know, these guys are selling eight balls out of a bodega or half ounces or kilos out of a bodega. Well, where do they come from? You know, they don't just show up at the bodega in the morning and it's there. They have to be delivered and transported. So... You know, you start to figure it out. You know, you got a bit of a brain. You start to figure, okay, so someone's dropping off kilos here, all right? But where are they coming from? Mm. And then, of course, you see on the news, 1,500 kilo bust in right. Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, Corona, whatever. And, and, you know, so, you know, we have brains. We put it together. But so that's how you begin to learn. But unless you're an investigator, you don't really know how it works. Right. And those guys know how it works. And they made a lot of money back in the day, let me tell you. And so then you start working with uh, a man in documentary, last name Diaz, um, Adam Diaz, was Adam Diaz. Um, and, you know, at that point, do you feel like you're uh, almost maybe getting in too deep that you're being con now you're being controlled a little bit by the cartel um, that it's also very hard to get out of? I mean, are you? Do you feel like there was ever a point where you're like, fuck, I'm in a little too deep here. This is this is really a problem. Like, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's when I decide it's just better off to be to drive my Corvette into the precinct and see what they got. Right? Like uh. so so I'm in so deep that I can't stop. And I don't want to disappoint anybody, right? I don't But did that scare you? So <sighs> What scared me is the unknown, right? So the unknown was, I don't know what's happening. I don't know who's on me, who's watching me, but I know there's something going on around me a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's back in 87, 88, okay. like that. So, so you're like 26, 27. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, like, do they know what I'm doing? Like, hello? You know, I see things. I see signs of things. I mean, I have this guy follow me all the time. This guy, Tromboli, follow me everywhere I went. I would find him out in bars on Long Island, I would find him in delis, I'd find him in liquor stores, he was always around me. I think, maybe I'm crazy. Yeah, maybe it's me. Maybe it's not the same guy. Because he would change looks, he would change his look, you know, try to anyway. That was a little fun. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he was dogged on me, and, and, and the funny thing is he had no help, you know, and I used to chase him. <laughs> I didn't know who it was, but I would chase him, you know, in, either in the car, or, or uh, off a block, or I'd call 911 on him. You know, there's a, there's a male white in a four-door sedan <laughs> with a gun. Yeah. You know, I called 911. And all of a sudden, 911, they don't show. How come the cops don't show up? The guy's got a radio. He's calling. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> don't come here. Did that fear, I mean, you know, you've also, you talk about, you know, drug usage and alcohol and whatever. Did that, was was the, one of the reasons why you were using at that time because you were so almost 
maybe paranoid or didn't know what was going to happen or scared? No, that would be an excuse to say that. You know, okay. I was just experimented. I was young. I never really used cocaine. I smoked a couple of joints in my life. You know, that was it. You know, and so you uh, don't feel like the two are connected. It was just well, I mean, what's connected is the access to it right. was there. So initially, like any, oh, you never do drugs. Never do you know? Don't try your own supply. Whatever those words are, you know. Ah, so uh, and then one time was a I don't know it was a, some kind of a party I was at and I tried a little bit and it didn't do anything to me. And um, I was actually at a hockey game, police and fire department hockey game. My partner made me do it. Hmm. Not not this one, but the one prior. He made me do it. And I'm like, dude, I don't, I'm not interested in that. It doesn't matter. He says, well, I want to do something. I said, well, go ahead. I don't give a shit what you do. It's your life. He said, no, I want to do some, and I want to feel safe knowing that you did some also. Otherwise, I can't do it. He said, now that I mentioned it, you got to do it. So... I did a little line of something with the, him, and I said, all right, good, done. And then I didn't do it. Then about not, about three, four months later, I did it uh, like a New Year's Eve party or something. I did something, and I did it every day for like 90 days straight. You know? Did you? <laughs> 90 days straight? Yeah, pretty much. Maybe you... 91. I don't know. <laughs> did you then ever... I ended up in rehab. Yeah. Yeah, right after that, I went to a rehab. Did you ever think you were going to die or overdose or something? Or... Once or twice, yeah. Because it was the pink Peruvian shit that it was amazing, you know. Like, not like the stuff you get out there, you know. It's like this was like it looked like the color of this inside. It was how good it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, you're you know you're you're dealing for the cartel. We talk about you know for the people that haven't watched Seven Five and and aren't familiar with it, how it works when a cop is working with the cartel. Right. Talk about how that you know they tell you look no, well, the other so, way. They tell you no, move no, this. No, no, so, How's that work? So. so we had a broker in the middle. This guy, uh, Baron Perez, he was he ran a car a car um, radio uh, radio installation company, and uh, and who had money back then to put these you know twenty thousand dollar systems in cars were drug dealers. So all his clientele, for the most part, were drug dealers, and uh, he was just a he was just a businessman. He didn't really give a shit, and uh, he's just making money, and you, you couldn't help but to notice the best cars and and, and the sexy women. At his shop all the time, you know, or the, the hoop earrings, the gold teeth flashing around. It was like Mr. T starter kits on everybody. Like, how could you not notice this? So, you know, curiosity killed the cat. You know, we become friendly, and he ends up offering us a uh, um, listen. You know, he sees that we're loose, we're not too tight. You mm -hmm. know, uh, a friend of mine, you know, could use a little help. Uh, he wants to know how, how this weekend's going to be with narcotics undercover. It's 4th of July weekend, so I take a guess. That's going to be good. Don't worry. The cops are all working. <laughs> these details, these, uh, uh, you know, the parades, the, the, the fireworks, the boat marches, all this stuff. So the, so the narcotics isn't generally, uh, isn't generally a high priority on the holiday weekend, you know? Because they're just, they're, people want to be off with their... I'm just doing deduction. I want to be off with my family. I want to be on vacation like everybody else. And I, if, if those that are available are put on detail assignments. Mm -hmm. So... There's not that much undercover work going on on a Fourth of July weekend, so I take. I said, "Yeah, he's safe. Don't worry, we got it." <laughs> anyway, he, was, he gave us eight thousand or whatever it was for the week, and um, but he shorted us, you know, seven hundred dollars. Yeah, like they 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 pay you in bundles, thousand, 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 thousand. That's how you get paid in drug money, and there was eight bundles, and each bundle had like a hundred dollars missing from it. <laughs> Like, what are we fucking stupid here? 
I, oh, it's only 900 for you to police? You know, is it discounted? I mean, there's no discounts here. So anyway, long story short, that's when you see the movie part where I, uh, we, I pull the guy over and, uh, and I tell him, let's do it right here. Let's go right now. Day one. Because <laughs> they, they put a hit on me. Mm. And I went and I confronted him. Now, that's not the Diaz group. That's a different group. That was very dangerous group. La Compania, I think the name was. Yeah. Uh, I don't really care anymore. It's, it's, now it's like old. <laughs> Whatever. You know, but yeah, so that, uh, he shorted the 700. That, the, the, it was the principle. You know, it wasn't the 700. It was the principle. Like, you're asking us to give you some information. You agreed on a price and now you're underpaying us? I mean, who the fuck do you think you are? Mm. So... I, then I had the police car sit in front of his shop like all day for like a week and he was losing his fucking mind so then he called up uh, some so he, he put a hit on me and, I, and somehow Baron found out about it mm. and Baron 911 my pager back then we had pages and beepers and stuff you know I said, what the hell is this for I call his office I said what's up he goes, you, you coming to work today I go yeah he says you gotta stop here and see me before you come in I said okay so I went and said Saw him in the, his office at the um, automobile uh, installation place to, for the stereos. And he told me, yeah, they put a hit on you. And, and believe it or not, the precinct knew. And, what they, and they didn't tell me. <laughs> they didn't say a fucking word to me. Did they want you out? I mean, at that point, did they want you out? Yeah, they wanted me gone from the day they met me, probably. I mean, I don't know. But, uh, but they, they didn't do a thing about it. They, they heard about it, but they didn't say anything. But then afterwards, how Cause, did Because La Compania was, was, they were embedded in La Compania. Have you seen the movie? You see the detectives in the van and stuff like that, and they're running because they're yeah, getting shot that. at. Well, those detectives, those detectives had inside information on the on the on the group because they had informants, and they knew that there was a hit put on me. I didn't, they didn't give a fuck. They didn't tell me. <laughs> I had to have the drug dealer's associate tell me that they put a hit on me. But the day that they put the hit on me, I found the guy that day, which I had never met the guy before. But I found him that day. But how did your deal? How did your deal work with them? Like in terms of moving drugs and looking the other way, how so that, does that work? That, that was two separate things. That thing there was just just an informational, just an informational. How, how's the weekend gonna be? Can we go full bore? Do we have to watch out for undercover this week? And I said, ah, don't don't worry about it. It's not gonna be much. I don't know. I just guessed. But the other thing was uh, with Diaz was a setup where we would help advise them on what we knew in order to prevent them from being busted. It wasn't like, there wasn't a war with the cops. It was like, we just don't want to get busted. Right. So his operation was so big that it was just so flashy. I mean, he'd have cars pull up with Porsches, Mercedes, BMWs all day long to his bodega in the ghetto. I'm like, dude, like, people can't pay rent here, and, you're, and you've got these... You got Maseratis pulling up in, uh, on the corner of Vermont and New Lots, bro. You, you can't have that type of business. <laughs> like, it's, like, that's not, like, low-key. So, we, you know, I gave him some advice on what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. But the problem was, which we didn't know this, but they were already in his organization. Like, not inside his organization, per se, but they already had people working for, uh, they had already been, like, a s snitches working. Still purchasing drugs from him. Mm. But working for the feds at that point, and the and in, in a joint task force. I mean, here I am, you know, coming along like a schmuck, not knowing. I don't know what he's what he's into, but they were into his organization already at that point. They they were just waiting for a couple more good buys by their informant and to bust the place. Of course, I come along right in the beginning of this, you know, where 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 they're already deep in. 
I don't know this because they don't call me up. Hey, Dowd, by the way, we're deep into some guy's bodega on your on your beat. That they just, I just don't get that information. <laughs> so they got hit by. Uh, but I saw them coming. So that's mm. that's when he, you hear uh, in the movie he says Dowd was worth his weight in gold because I uh, I saw them setting up and I said to my the bodega people, shut it down, shut it down right now. I I didn't even know the guy behind the counter. He just looked at me, and I went, shut it down right now. And I, and I walked out. Half an hour later, they came, stormed the place, and they didn't get a gram of salt out of the place. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And, and then it turns out that one of the investigators for the Marlin Commission, his name was Bob Machadi, I think. Bob Machadi, I think his name was. He's sitting there talking to me to do this uh, interview for the Marlin Commission, and he says, that was my fucking bust, you know. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, we were so deep into that place we didn't get a damn thing out of it because of you. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't know. But no one got hurt. And he's, we can laugh yet, but it's a very serious right. situation. you know. And I, I mean, we find humor in, in things that are serious, but, you know, and I'm not here to justify, or, you know, what I did or rationalize even. What I did was wrong. And so I hope people take that from this, that I'm not here to boast about right. what happened, all right? Because that would be the wrong message. Right. I'm saying, I laugh at life, you know? And, right. so, and, you know, it is what it is. That's how I am. And during your prime, how much, I mean, I think what, you guys make about $600 a week as police officers? Not, you no, know, we didn't make that much. Really? It, <laughs> what was it? What, My check was like, generally, for two weeks, it was like seven, 800. Okay, so, yeah. and then how much, so how much are you making illegitimately you, at, at your prime? Uh, well, eight thousand a week split in half is four, and then probably another fifteen hundred. So, uh, eight, well, about fifty-five hundred a week at the time. Wow! So you're making tenfold, twentyfold of what you're. Yeah, yeah. And I think my my favorite part is that you you stop picking up your your police checks at that point. Yeah, it was a, it was annoying. <laughs> it, was, it was pennies compared to what you're making. It was annoying. No, no it's unfortunate. <laughs> you know, when you have three checks backed up in your. And the and the bosses had to like every shift they're supposed to check how many checks are still in the box. And my check was in there for a couple of weeks, you know. <laughs> they're saying, "When's this guy gonna pick up his fucking check?" You know. Do, do they all know what was going on? Do you think? Okay, like anything else, like you show up today in in a brand new Mercedes and you haven't gone to work yet. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't had a fucking job, all right? So you show up to work with a brand new Corvette, and yeah, you know, and you're making the same as me. So something's not right here. Right. You know, it's like you were born into money, you know, or we didn't hear that you hit the lottery. So they know something's going on. But, you know, I'm not announcing it at roll call saying, listen, right. by the way, I just got eight grand this week from Diaz over on Vermont. The new lots, anybody interested, there's a spot over on Schenectady and, 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 and the 36th Street. You can go there, too. It's a great spot. You know, I mean, it's not like. Uh, are you making so are you, you're making the money from the from the, the drug money? And then are you also doing, you know, I mean, there's the. The, the famous story of when you drive around the block for an hour and a half. That was and fun. That was, I, that was, a, that was, I was, that was neurotic. Will, will you, will you, for the people who haven't seen the 7.5, and they probably will uh, after this, um, just describe, because that's probably one of my all-time favorites, where I'll let, you, I'll let you, you talk about it, but you basically drive around a spot for an hour and a half because yeah. you, there's money in there, and you want to yeah. make sure that no one gets there before yeah, you. Yeah, I was very concerned. Yeah. Well, because I saw the cachet, right? I mean... I knew there was money in there, and the people that owned the money were in prison. And this is, so this is just a little apartment 
in uh yeah in Brooklyn right on Hegeman between uh, right and, and you get a call for what what were they say is... uh, it was burglary okay so we arrived there's two young girls there uh, at this spot you know and they 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 took the door handle off and went into the apartment so um so I was working with this internal affairs plant female uh, um and uh, she was a nice person she just it was a plant she she had she had she had worked for internal affairs in the 114 i think and they transferred it to the 75 to cool down and who's she working with me uh, how the fuck are you cooling down what the, anyway so burglary takes place we show up and, and sure enough like the two young girls they didn't run or anything they were just what are you guys doing here uh well you know our friends in jail uh, and uh she said we can come here or he or she said we can come here and hang out well you you broke into the apartment. Like, would they give you a memo from jail? How'd you get to jail? What'd they do? Call you up from jail? I mean, how does this work? Anyway, so I didn't take the collar. I gave it to anti-crime undercover guys. They, they like their numbers. They're the numbers guys. They got to get their numbers. So they arrest these two girls for burglary. And while we're there, I notice something. I just, I'm, I'm, I, first of all, how, how smart am I? What'd they get arrested for? Oh, I think for selling drugs. Oh, that's good. You know, bad and good, right? They did something bad, and now the good thing is that you're telling me this, so yeah. now I can find something here. So I sort of, I sort of boxes of shoes and stuff. When you see boxes of shoes, big red flag, big red flag. <laughs> so keep your boxes of shoes well hidden. But so, and then sure enough, uh, in in it, I opened the I opened the um, closet, which wasn't much to open. It you just the doors there, you open it, and uh, this is big garbage bag on the floor. A hefty, heavy-duty hefty bag f filled with cash. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I had to get signed, you know. They, were, they couldn't use How it. How much was in that bag, They couldn't think? use it. Yeah. You know, they were in prison. They had no use for it anymore. And one of the cops says, well, I'm, I'm going to vouch this. I said, for what? So the city gets it? Just leave it here. You know, no one, what are you going to do, paperwork? You got the arrest. Take the arrest and go. So he did. And then, uh, then he, you can't believe this. So I go back in and I, I load my pockets up with, I don't know, five, six grand. You know, How much was in the whole bag, you think? 40000 something like that. Anyway, and uh, so I put a couple grand in my pocket, and sure enough, he comes behind me. What are you doing? I go, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Damn, money keeps falling out of my pocket. <laughs> now, now like, I feel like I got caught by the police, you know, putting money in my pocket. <laughs> what am I going to do? Oh, yeah, this money keeps yeah. No good. Bad. Bad money. So I put it back in the bag, and then he leaves, and I, and, I, and, I, and I go, I keep a couple of thousand on me. So we go downstairs, and I go, I got to get this fucking bag. It's on my mind. <laughs> now I got this woman in the car. She has no idea that this She's a good is, cop. She's a good cop. She's a good cop, yeah. She's internal affairs, yeah. Today, she's a, she's a hero. Uh, <laughs> back then, no one wanted to work with you. So she, so I'm, I'm, I, I got her in the car, and, and she goes, uh, I, I go, yeah, so they got the collar, this and that, and uh, I got to get the bag. I just can't. I just can't leave it. Yeah. Someone's going to get it. So that's probably why the girls were there, to get the bag, right? So I end up calling Chicky, right? And, and now Chicky tells me he's got his cars in the shop. <laughs> his cars in the shop getting repaired. Now, Chicky's got no job. He used to be a cop, but he got, long story, it's a long story. So he, uh, I says, well, get a, get a car. Get, get, steal a car, rob a car, rent a car, just get a car. <laughs> so with that, he, he calls up another guy, Brian. So Brian has a car. He's retired. He comes. He's got a, a brand new back then um, Trans Am, right? That was a big, big show back then. He had a Trans Am. So he, he drove from Brooklyn 
to Long Island, picked up Chicky and drove back to the spot. So I had to, I had to wait an hour and a half circling the fucking block, keep an eye on. I don't want to see. No one strange went in and no one came out with a bag. Yeah. <laughs> so I kept circling the block every what way. What are you, you telling could. her? I told her we're just gonna keep an eye on the place. <laughs> we're just gonna keep an eye on the place because you know I feel responsible. The door's not locked. So you're a good actor. Yeah, on the top door's of not locked. <laughs> we should just stay in the area here. You know, the, the owner's in prison. You know, Rikers or something. You know, I'm just concerned. With that, I get out of the car and I call the station house. I say, listen, boss, uh, Dow, the insectors, whatever I was, Eddie Frank or John Nora. Yeah, what's up? Think I can get some lost time today? He goes, yeah, sure. Now, with that, Chicky and Brian pull up. They get out of the car and they got their, they're dressed like detectives now. <laughs> I don't say nothing. I just keep driving. They look at me. They go in. I don't know, I circle the block, come back out, and they had their cars taken off. I pull, whoop, whoop, and she goes, what's that? I said, oh, there's some friends of mine who used to work here. I'll, I'll be right there. I go, how do we do it? I go, we got a big bag full of money. We're going to go count it. <laughs> so I call up the station house. I say, listen, boss, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take some lost time, if that's okay with you. She, he goes, sure, no problem. Come on in. So I go to the station house, take lost time. We, pull, we call up a limousine company. <laughs> we jumped in a limo and head off to Atlantic City. Uh, and then basically there to clean the money and yeah well you wanted to turn your 20s into hundreds right. and stuff like that so do you ever it's an exciting day <laughs> it was a good day do, do you was it always like would you wake up you knew some crazy shit was gonna happen every day something was gonna happen and it was it mostly enjoyable for, was it more enjoyable I didn't want to miss a day I didn't want to miss a day at work I hate three day swings because I might miss something you know there were so many things I, I forget half of them but you know one time this guy the big guy in the movie Walter yeah. he pulls all he, he, my sector he's in my sector for the moment because I'm on meal he's in the sector driving around and there's a shooting goes down and back then shootings were all day long yeah. so and, 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 and the vehicle is a Mercedes Benz and uh, he, the guy in the Mercedes is getting shot at so he jumps out of his car don't ask me why and takes and runs away Leases his car there with the keys in it. So Walter and his, and his buddy pull up uh, in the middle of the mayhem, and they see this car there. They open the trunk. There's $110,000 in the trunk of the car. I mean, that's mine. Yeah. That's in my sector. How do I know there's 110000 in the car? How do I know? Yeah. How do we all know? Because they vouched it. Otherwise, we would, we would not have known. Mm. There could have been zero in that car. I probably wouldn't have vouched it. You would not have known there was 108000 in the car. So now I'm sick. I'm on meal. I lost 108000 It's my money. I had my name. George, Dow, Michael. <laughs> my name was all over every one of those bills. So, but those things happen quite often. You know, like, so, so like you said... Any day something can happen. A guy gets shot with a shotgun through the windshield of his car. He he runs up five flights five flights of stairs on uh, Hinsdale on Hinsdale Avenue, which Hinsdale and Riverdale like one of the hottest spots in the country, you know. And he goes up and uh, he's shot. Why would you go five floors up if you were shot in your legs? Because the guy got shot through the windshield and he hit him with buckshot. So he's got holes in his All legs right. and he runs up five flights. Now I'm not that smart, but I know one thing. If you're running upstairs with holes in your legs, there's a reason you're running upstairs. So he went upstairs to drop off the money and the drugs. And so we followed the blood trail into the apartment. They wouldn't let us in, of course. Now we have to force our way in. They let us in. They threw him out. That's They threw him out. Get out. <laughs> He's laying on the staircase. All bloody, shot up. 
and, and, and you know, so now the ambulance comes and they got to take him out. In the meantime, we're trying to get in the house. They won't let us in, you know. So I go, we're going to run the door down. Clancy, surround the house, you know, whatever the fuck. Boom, and we, 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 we get in and we find the money. And that was the day before my wedding. <laughs> so I was able to pay and find all the bills for my fucking uh, wedding. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to go to Atlantic City with that load. Did you, uh, did your wife and, and then, you know, girlfriends down the line know of all this activity? I mean, what do you tell? Are you even able to sleep at night? Um, hmm. I don't remember if I slept much, but, you know, it, it's, this is almost sadistic. It's like once you do it once and you're, and, and you're able to overcome that, then it, not, they just, it's just yeah. like the first. It's never the same after you do it once, right? I guess like serial killers, they do it once, like right. a big thrill, and all of a sudden they just, eh, I need another one, I need another one. Like that, that doesn't ma doesn't matter. After a while, it just didn't matter. You didn't, because you know what, you, you didn't feel any 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 effect. You didn't feel any retribution or, like when the, the guy when the guy drove away with the with the with the first time with the Corvette, and I took the money from him, like the hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, whatever I took from him, and I didn't get in trouble for it. Mm. So each step after that, and, and, and to be honest with you, it was really out in the open. Hmm. Many of the things we were able to do, excuse me, it was out in the open. Like, you know, if you hit a spot, like, there was, usually it's a shooting and we respond, right? Because right. You, you, you're not usually sitting in the middle of a shooting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, usually people just don't shoot when the cops are there right. normally. It does happen, though, sometimes. So you, if you're shooting, you respond, and whatever's left is yours to clean up, i.e. a body, Cash, drugs, guns, whatever's left behind is yours to clean up. So it really was an open secret that, you know, whatever you want, you, you, it was your, you know, it was yours to take. I mean, the guy's gone. There's no one there. Clear. Excuse me, officer, when you're finished with that body, those drugs and that cash are mine. I'd like it back and vouch it, please. You know, that doesn't really happen. Yeah. It may today. <laughs> Some people are brazen enough, you know. So, you know, but that really wasn't the case. Normally, everybody's gone, including victim. And perpetrator gone, and whatever's left was yours. And I, 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 I tell one story where I put a couple hundred dollars in my pocket one time, and the boss showed up and said, "Is that it?" And I went, "Oh, oh, oh, I, I, this is a couple hundred here too. I, I didn't want it to get blood stained or anything like that. It's a nice, neat couple hundred dollars." And um, so later on that night, I said to the boss, "I said, what if I just kept that money? Because if I don't see it, it's yours." I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. I mean, that was like a. You laugh. You, you, you don't want to laugh, but it is funny. <laughs> you don't want, but it's it's you know like wow, like every every man's dream to find money and be able to have it. Yeah. Like that's what it was. Now, of course, I was a police officer. It's it was not appropriate. You know, right. but uh, did you feel like you were more criminal, more gangster, or more police officer? Both. No, no clearly at some point there, I felt like uh, I was not doing the. So it's it's a it's a dichotomy, right? Because I'm still responding to help people when they need it, and and to be honest with you, I am that person. Right. But if you're playing, you're part of the game. Mm. But if you was if you were an injured human being, or, or you know, I still saved ch children's lives. So here I'm justifying, rationalizing my behavior. Right. But the reality is, I still tried to do police work. But back then, in the '80s, it was so full. The street was so full of drugs, guns, bodies, uh, and money that, it, listen, I wasn't the only one, mm -hmm. okay? And I'm not shifting blame or anything right. like that. 
every single precinct in the high crime areas had the same thing going on. Every single one. I wasn't in charge of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't run all them. But every single one, if you go down the list, had something like that very similar going on. Because it really was just overwhelming and very very tempting. And, 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 and it come to a point where you almost felt like it was yours. Because you found it. Right, right. Uh, and who's going to miss this, you know? This guy's dead. It was his. He can't claim it because he's not paying taxes, Uncle Sam, on it. His family's not going to get the money right. or hers, whoever happened to be the victim at the time, right? Because it's a, it's a victim and a perpetrator all in one, no? Mm -hmm. Because if you're selling drugs and you become a victim of a crime, you're both a criminal and a victim, right? Right. Like, so I can have you, you can be arrested while, like people get arrested while they're shot. Right. It happens all the time. People don't realize that. Just because you got shot doesn't mean you're, you're innocent of the crime committed. So it was a very... Did you also feel like you maybe weren't being rewarded financially as much for the risk that you were taking well, on a That's definitely basis? part of it, too. That, that, that's what lends to the justification of, right. well, I can take a couple hundred right now. I got $4 in my pocket. I just saved a kid's life. I, can, I just you know, saved a kid's life. Yeah. I, brought, I brought his child to the hospital. I can use a hundred here. You know, Who's going to be mad, right? And In fact... Most people would say, yeah, why not, right? Because one of the things that came out of this was a lot of people in the beginning, when they heard about it, you know, when they when they took a step back, they said, a lot of people said, well, he was just taking money from the drug dealers. Who cares? Right? Because that's how I right. justified right. it. Rapidly. Who cares? The, the guys are dealing drugs. It's part of the game. It's like the mafia. They kill their own. Yeah. No one really cares. No one really cares. Oh, that was, uh, you know, Tony, Tony the Tongue. Yeah, Tony the Tongue got his today because he didn't pay Johnny Johnny Jonah bag of donuts. He, Joey Donuts didn't get his money from t t Tony the Tongue, right. so they whacked him. Ah, no big deal. And that's sort of the same mentality right. we dealt with. So, hey, I'm a, yeah, I, I, I don't want to say I'm a victim because I wasn't, but you know, circumstances were, and um, I don't know. I, I, it's embarrassing some of the things that, that we did and that I can admit to, but the reality is when you're in the moment, you're not thinking about how stupid and ridiculous it sounds later right. Like later on repeating it and saying, this is ridiculous, this story. <laughs> but the reality is it's, it is true. Now, at what point did you kind of figure out that, because there's also another story I heard in, a, in an interview um, where you go down, I think it's the Dominican Republic, to see Diaz. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and you're being... <laughs> I'll let you tell the story, but... <laughs> You're basically being trailed. I don't remember the exact details, but by D agent. Yeah. Um, will you will you kind of go into that for for the people who didn't who don't know that that uh, story? I, I, that, that didn't make the that didn't, didn't I didn't make the documentary. I think it was on either Rogan or Diaz yeah, or yeah, one of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. So uh, I I had just um, and this is like a name drop. I just had, I I just I'm dating this woman, female police officer, and she's friends with. Sonny Franchise, senior, the old man, okay. right? And I think she might have dated Michael or something. I'm not sure. But uh, so Sonny ends up, Sonny, she's, she's having a conversation with him, and she says to him, what's a good place to go on vacation in the DR? Because I'm telling her, I got to go to the DR. I want to see Diaz. What, what was the reason? That you I, wanted, I wanted to speak to him about my money flow. It wasn't? It, it wasn't, wasn't happening. Okay. Yeah, I'm a little disappointed here. Because okay. the agreement was you continue to get the money no matter what happens. Because you just sold your soul to the devil just right. now. So anyway, so I'm going to go to the DR and see what's going on with my money flow. How old are you at this point? I don't know, 26, 27. Okay. I, I don't know. 88, 89. So 
Yeah, 26, 27. I'm born in 61, so I, I, I don't, you know, I get the years, I, there's a year missing in my life. I just don't know where it went, okay? To be <laughs> honest with you. And, and so I, some of these numbers get thrown off yeah. because the car was an 87, and I drove the 87 car, but it was a leftover. So I'm like, how the fuck did I have an 87 car? And then I went to the rear. So I'm, I, I, I lost a year there somewhere. But so, uh, so he suggests to her that I go to El Casa de Campo in Dominican Republic. What do I know? I'm just, I'm on my way, right? Book the tickets, we get to the place, we're on the way, on a plane, and we're getting off the plane, and some guy comes over to us. And when we get off the plane, we're getting, in the DR, we're getting like grilled. Who are you? What's your name? I'm looking around like this. It's only two white people getting off the plane, me and her, okay? Everybody else is Dominican, you know? So, why, what, what do we do? Why do you want to know my name? I added all this shit. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. They give me back my shit. In the meantime, some guy comes over, heavy, full-bearded Dominican guy, light-skinned Dominican with a full beard, and he says, uh, is everything okay? Like anyway. He's trying to be helpful. Yeah, I don't know. They want to know who we are, what we're doing here. He says, uh, uh, he says well, where are you going? I says, well, we're going over here uh, to El Casa de Campo. Oh, really? Now he finds out right away. <laughs> I don't know he's the fucking DEA or the... Internal affairs. I go, well, we're here. We're on vacation. I'm not, what am I hiding? I'm not here to hide anything. I'm, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to meet a friend of mine who owns a couple of bodegas in Brooklyn, blah, blah, blah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know if I told him his name. I may have. I wasn't hiding the fact that I'm in DR going to meet a friend of mine that runs bodegas. Yeah. He doesn't run the biggest drug organization in Brooklyn. <laughs> I didn't say that. He runs bodegas, right? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling either a DEA agent or internal affairs what I'm doing here in, in the Dominican Republic. Meanwhile, I don't know this, but they're already they're already on me anyway. Okay, they're already on me in Brooklyn and Queens, and at that time, I think I was working in, um, I think I was working in, in the Whitestone Pound, and they were following me there. They had cameras set up. They had all kinds of shit on me. I don't know, but they did. And uh, so I'm in the DR, and. Uh, they they put me in a house like I'm I'm I, I'm on a honeymoon vacation type thing here right they put me in a house with six different couples and like each everybody gets a locked off bedroom and stuff and you share a common area I'm like I'm paying four thousand dollars for this I mean this is a like are you fucking serious like this is ridiculous what I'm paying so anyway they take me and they drop I said to, to do me a favor take me back I'm not staying here. So they pick me up in this golf cart and they drive me back. Like a 15-minute drive. I, I don't even know if he's going in circles. Uh, I don't know what's going on. They take me back. They put me in another place right there, right by the poolside. This is what a vacation is. The pool's here. I'm out in the country somewhere. They got me in the Well, they had four or five individuals, couples in the house. No one was there. Like, you arrive at 8 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock at night, and nobody's in the building? It was strange. Yeah. You know, like... Like maybe one couple there would, you know, hey, how you doing? Welcome to the house. You know, it's like a, like a group house or something. Nothing. So, I'm calling Diaz up, saying, "Listen, I'm in town." His wife answers the phone. Yeah, he's playing basketball. Okay, well, we'll tell him Mike's in town. I'm in the Casa de Campo. Okay, I'll tell him. He's like five three too. He's like, five three, five four. You know, he'll tell you he's five five. <laughs> anyway. So this is about eight o'clock at night. My um, midnight, I'm calling. Hey, listen, it's it's Mike. Is Adam there? He's playing basketball. This goes on for three nights. 
I said, you'd expect, do me a favor. I said, I came here, all the Dominican Republic, to see him. I said, and he's playing basketball. He can't stop playing basketball? <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, I, I took a plane. I rented rooms like, for the hotel. I, I want to see him while I'm here in, in his country. This is not the way you treat somebody that, that flew into your country. Meanwhile, he knows that I'm being followed. I don't know that I'm being followed, but he does because the whole police department knows him. So he's getting information. I'm being followed. Don't go see him. I'm getting mad as fuck that he's not coming to see me. I'm in his country. I, uh, what more can I do? So, P.S. Yeah, that was that was interesting. <laughs> How did you find out then that you were being? What at what point did you know you were being followed? Or well, was it later down. down well, the line? when I got off the plane in, in JFK, I was strip searched, and there was oh. a whole lineup of DEA agents and, and and everybody there. Did you have stuff on you that? No. Yeah, I'm like, what do you want? I think I'm, I'm going to go someplace and bring back something. I mean, this is ridiculous. They strip search me. They strip search her. And, they, you know, cops are the biggest smugglers. Oh, really? Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but good to know. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and, then, and then they will follow me that night. You know, so it turned out how I actually found out was much later on. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think the same agent was at my house three years later, four years later. Because he was on his, that was part of his case, you know. He was actually setting me up with the kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And so. He was the same guy in my backyard that was setting me up for the kidnapping who was in the, on the plane in the Dominican Republic. I figured this all out in prison, by the way. I didn't figure this out till 10 years when, later. When you figured out in prison, you're like, holy fuck, what the. Yeah, this is where, yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, I was, it was, oh my God, I can't. Believe what they actually were doing. But were there a lot of hints over time that yes. you were being followed? Yes. Like there was weird. Oh yeah, there's, like, there's cars down the block. There's um, people at work uh, would be tailing me while I was working. Did you ever? Did you ever like? Okay, I should stop doing this, or I should. Of course, I did stop for time beings. You know, momentaries, like a month, two months. You know, okay. that's what I was involved in, in cocaine at that point. You know, like shipping it around and moving it. I was no longer with the Diaz people. Because uh, basically the whole organization went to prison, you know, at some point. And uh, so I was back, you know, the problem is I, I, I was, one, addicted to cocaine, and two, addicted to the money more than anything else right. and the lifestyle, you know. And it's hard to come down off that game when you have that type of access to money. It's very right. difficult. I mean, don't feel bad for somebody, but it's not, it's not easy. Now, in the, in the 7-5, obviously, they, they go through when you get arrested and all that, but... For again, for the people who haven't seen it, the moment you're arrested, I mean, take us through maybe that morning and, you know, because Kenny sets you up and he's wearing the wire and we all know that. Um, you say you almost feel like a sense of relief. Okay, so the movie doesn't show this, but there's two there's two arrests, right? I, I, they sort of allude to that in the movie. There's two arrests. One, I'm arrested at the 9-4 at the precinct working with somebody else, not with Kenny, because Kenny was retired already with a three-quarters disability pension. So he retired in like 89 or early 90. And now you're talking 92 in May, this takes place. May, the day after Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, well, May 6th, we get arrested. And, uh, and by the way, that's the day that my lottery number came in. Yeah, I won the lottery that day. You know, my, the regular number, like right. my number was 310. My badge was 22, 310. The number 310 came in on May 6th or 7th. May 7th, that's I think hilarious. it was. I couldn't play it that day. I was incarcerated, you know. But that day it came in. So there you go. That's my luck. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, um, so, what I, I was out on bail when, they, when, when Kenny Urell put the wire on. But I was out on bail from a state arrest from Suffolk County had arrested 
us, which was an amazing feeling like I had described, it was like, finally, it's over. Was it happy or just relief? I, I think a little bit of both. Hmm. Yeah, I was happy that I could stop being, feeling the chase. Like I felt the chase the whole time. I knew they were around. I knew they may come. I, 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 I didn't want them to come, but, but if you're going to come, come now, please. You know, I mean, get it over with. Do you think you'd be locked up for life if, if once you I thought I was going to get a slap on the wrist to retire. Go, go, get out. Oh. Just, just resign. So you never, jail, you didn't ever think that was going to happen? No. Oh, they just were like, oh, resign. Yeah, resign. That's how I thought of it. That's how I saw it. Okay. Resign, you're done. And there's a reason for that. Okay. And the reason is because the, uh, it, this is a this is a little bit in depth story. I don't know where where this is going here, but the, look, long story short, um, it was a point in my career when I wanted to turn my life around and become a real police officer. Really? And I and it was a cop that uh, abused me mentally, uh, in, in physically uh, abused me in the street. I don't mean he didn't grab you? my ass or anything. Finger, he didn't finger me or anything like that. He 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 um. He attacked me verbally in the street and, and berated me. And it turned out, three weeks later, he was on Long Island at a crack spot. Huh. So there's no loyalty in the game. Like, he's not my dog. Like, a lot of people say, oh, that's rat. No, 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 no. He's not my dog. My dog is you and me. Right. You know, you and I agree to do something together. But if this, this guy over here is going to fuck me, no, 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 no. All, all bets are off. So that's the way I was raised, you know? If you're in the game, that's your game between you and me. But if you're in the game and you're going to fuck me, that's your problem. Now you're screwing somebody. So I ended up making a phone call on this guy. And Internal Affairs came to see me in minutes. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck do they want me? Like, this is so important. And it was the guy, Tromboli, that was following me. Mm. He wanted to get in my house and start grilling me and questioning me about my activities. So I told him, I said, whoa. I called you because this is a guy, is a, is a New York City police officer, was in a crack spot on Long Island with his brand new Mercedes Benz. Okay? He's got a brand new Mercedes. He's got, he's obviously, he's in a crack spot on Long Island. So why are you questioning me about how did I get this house? Mm. I'm in the basement apartment of a house that my wife's family sold me. You know, for 50 cents on a dollar, whatever. That's that's my good fortune. Right. Look, you're asking me all about how... This, is, is this about me or is this about this guy? Long story short, the guy was out on bail. He was arrested mm. for giving his gun. His gun was used to enforce, uh, as an enforcer's weapon in, in Manhattan, at a, at, a, at, a, at a spot in Manhattan. Mm. And he was arrested for it. And he had a fight with the police. When he was when he got arrested, because his gun was being used as a, in in the in this uh, in the enforcer's role, so he was an enforcer slash collector for a drug organization in Manhattan. I don't know this fucking. I have no idea. So they tell me that's why they want the information on him. I said, so what are you gonna do? No, no, we don't care that he was selling drugs. This is the straight up answer. We don't care that he was selling drugs. We just want to prevent him from getting his job back, because he's out on bail right now. Mm. I said, okay, so you have a New York City police officer who's on, su on suspension right now for being the muscle behind the drug organization in Manhattan. He's in a crack spot on the island, and you don't care. You just want to make sure he can't get his job back. 
I mean, that's what I'm, that's what they're telling me. Uh, you know, at that time, I got four or five years on the job. Oh, so that's what, is that how this goes? Mm. You just get rid of people. You just don't want them to have their job. So then, that's when you. That's why you think you're never going to go to jail. That's why I'm thinking, uh, how am I going to go to jail? They're going to ask me to resign at some point. That's fine. That's why I drove my Corvette in. I said I was done. The pressure was killing me. I drove my Corvette into the station house and saying, listen, if they want me to resign, this will be the time. They'll know something's up for sure. And you think the reason that you went to jail, I mean, it became so public at that point, right? It, they, they needed, I mean, there was so much press on you. They needed to make a statement. Of course. Well, I mean, listen, what I did was criminal. It deserved, it deserved prison time, you know? And I'm not saying it, it may, in some eyes, it may have deserved more. I went by the federal sentencing you guidelines. Feel like you got, got away lucky with just 12 years? Well, I got I got a fourteen year sentence. Right. So uh, do, do I feel I got lucky? I would say in hindsight, we all get lucky because the feds can put you away forever. You know, they can just come up with anything. You know, uh, but I, fortunately enough, that my plea agreement they don't that's no plea deal in the feds. By the way, it's a plea agreement. The first offer was twenty four to thirty years, and I told them trial, and they went okay twenty four to seventeen. I said trial, and then they went eleven to seventeen. I said trial, and they went all right. What if we go from 12 to 15, I said, what happened to the 11? <laughs> I said, oh, no, no. This isn't a plea bargain. This is a plea agreement, okay? We were agreeing to let you plead to this. Otherwise, we go to trial, and there's 14 people willing to testify against you. So where do you want to go? Okay, well, let's see. <laughs> see what I can... You're humbled real quick. You know, you start to learn. You know, I'm watching guys get sentenced to 45 years, and which is part of what's going on here today that a lot of, a lot of us are dealing with the outgrowth of the over the over sentencing that took place in the late 80s and, and 90s you know and that's part of what what you see a lot of the, this this uh, pent-up hostility towards you know even though sometimes it's an excuse in some ways but certainly it's reality you know a lot of people were sentenced to very long stretches of time back then and I was ultimately subjected to it but they didn't want the public spectacle of a trial mm. And the city didn't want it. They figured, take this guy, plaster him, plea him out, and the whole problem's gone. Right. But meanwhile, with, 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 with the Marlin Commission ended up arresting the whole 30th precinct midnight shift. I don't know if you're familiar no. with that. It's called the Dirty 30. Mm. There was the midnight shift of the 30th precinct in Harlem. That's, I guess, the borderline Harlem. Uh, they locked up the whole midnight shift. 30 cops. So it's called the Dirty 30. Right. 30th precinct, they locked up 30 cops on the midnight shift. Wow. Now, like that wasn't that wasn't an anomaly. That's just the way that's the way it was. Right. It was like that everywhere in high crime, drug infested precincts. And I'm not proud to say that that's that, that's the case. It's just it's like going to war. When you go to war, you see bodies, you see bodies, you see shootings, you see shootings. After a while, uh, yeah, we got another five dead over here. It's just, you get ignored. You get ignored from all of it. You, you have no, you lose all sense of reality and, and uh, you no longer have, I don't know if this proper word is empathy or sympathy. You, 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 know, you lose all that feeling. Do you feel like jail saved you in a lot of ways? Did you ever feel, actually, first question is, did you ever feel like your life was in jeopardy at, at any point when you're dealing with the cartel and... That you were gonna get shot or or die? No, no. It's like you're impervious, like I said okay. earlier. You're God. So did you? But do you feel like jail saved you? Looking back on it, absolutely, a hundred percent. So yeah, because um, you know, 
because you start to begin to think that you can do anything, mm -hmm. and that I probably would end up in, in shootings or. Listen, this guy's got you know half a million in cash and half a million in drugs. Let's just go kill him, because because right. he's unimportant, right. right? He may be your mom or your dad or your brother, right. but he's unimportant because he's selling. Like you don't look at things the same anymore. He's selling drugs and he's got money. Right. He could be just there's twenty two hundred now. There's twenty two hundred and one murders. You know, no one like that's how it was. So I could see where that where it could have led, and that's clearly not where I want to be. I don't know. Right. I'm a, I'm a lover. I, I, I'm an emotional guy. I, I hug people. I, even with COVID, I try you know, be careful. But, but you know, it's, it's who I am, really. And I have a question. If Kenny were in this room right now, what would you say to him? <laughs> like, what's up? What are you doing? You know, what, there's no hard, there's, are there hard feelings? Yeah, I don't care. I don't, I'm too old to have hard feelings, you know. I'm beyond that. I'm, I mean, yeah, you know, you, you did some stupid things, whatever. I mean, I've met Kenny since I've been home, so... You know, what were those interactions like? It was like, like almost like nothing happened. Really? Yeah. It, it initially, but it like was, friends or like uh, more like uh, acquaintances. You know, shake each other's hand. Like yeah, give a hug, shake hands. Yeah, I I jumped him at the precinct. We had a setup. I, 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 they said, "Can we bring Kenny into the documentary? Would you be okay with that?" So I I acquiesced. I said, "Okay, go ahead, whatever." And then they said, "Well, we'd like for you two to meet and have a conversation or whatever." And I said. This is how I want to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So I had him go to the precinct, and I was sitting there, standing there waiting for him. He didn't know, and he came around the corner. And I jumped him. I gave him a big hug. Hey, how you doing? So, so no, no hard feelings for a guy who put you away for I 12 years. I mean, I, des I deserved it. I didn't deserve him to do it to me, but I deserved what I got. Yeah, but he didn't go. You know, he didn't. Well, I didn't. That wasn't part of my. That was right. on, That was the deal he made with the government. You know, and. After five years, I told you when you were in prison, after about five years, you clear up, right. you get rid of the anger and the resentments, and you say, you know what, I, I hope he's okay, you know? Because we had love for each other at some point. It's like an ex, you know? When you break up with a woman or whatever, you have a bad relationship, you know, five years down the road, you're like, I hope she's okay. Right. I, I hope her life is better. You know, for me, it doesn't take that long anymore. But it's hard, I imagine. I mean, you're in jail for 12 years. He didn't do a, a day, well, I don't what, think. What, Did what, he? The only thing that, no. Well, he was in county jail for a couple of days, okay. whatever. The only thing that bothers me is his lack of uh, empathy or sympathy. Mm. You know, like, yeah, big deal. You did twelve years. Can you imagine <laughs> someone saying that to you? <laughs> he said that on an Audie Lang show or something like that. Big deal. You did twelve years. I went, and I said, what? Yeah. The fuck are you? You say big deal. You did twelve years. Yeah. Yeah, you were sitting at home with, with a pension that I got you, banging your old lady. And, and I'm kissing bricks and broke, you know, and, and, and you're telling me, big deal? You know, I could, I, I, at any moment, I could have been killed in prison. Some guy who just has a bad day says, fuck it, I'm, I want to I make a statement. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it could have happened any day. So that, that sort of bothered me. Understandable. And so when the 7-5 comes out, uh, is it crazy? You know, you go from your in jail and then there's a whole documentary and then you're on well, Joe Rogan biggest podcast in the world and yeah. Joey D I mean all these shows you're almost like a, a celebrity is that is that weird um, for you in a lot of ways so so I'm sorry I'm getting a little <laughs> a little tired these interviews can weigh you out I do a lot of them but you know um, so going from so so it was quite it's quite the transition by the way it was it was um I was out of prison about ten years when they came to me and asked me to do this, um, the, the the documentary. So, 
it, it didn't just happen, you know what I mean? So I was that, and I was living a life, and, and I was um, I had a union job, which I lost due to the documentary. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, so a lot of things happened in my life before the documentary came along. And I was living a, a, a relatively uh, quiet life, um, peaceful, as peaceful as I can be for as, as outgoing as I, as I tend to be. Uh, so, yeah. The, the document. So, so the reason the documentary is so impactful is because there's some, some characters in it, right? Besides myself, you got Walter, yeah. you got Chicky, you got you got Bar uh, Baron in black, and you got uh, um, uh, Diaz, uh, Adam. I mean, we're all we're all probably a bunch of guys that you would want to have a beer with, right? That's my opinion of it. You I, know? I, I agree. Yeah, oh, yeah. So we were all like, we all have some kind of charismatic uh, approach to things in life and, and good attitudes mm -hmm. overall considering w what's happened to us but the reality is I think we all feel fortunate fortunate that that that, that we came out the other side of, of mm -hmm. our activities and still have a life to live and something to share and so, so the documentary had given us the opportunity to show who we really are because you can read newspapers and you know there is a lot of fake news out there just, mm -hmm. to, just so you know and uh, the things in the newspaper aren't necessarily who you are and some of the things that people forget is that, like even John Gotti, what a, what a charismatic guy, you know. He, you know, had a hundred people killed, but he's very charismatic, and people liked him and admired him, you know. And, and so, so there you go. So, those people generally mm -hmm. have characteristics that others are drawn to. So in the movie, you know, Diaz is, is a character. He's charismatic. People are drawn to him. Some people are even drawn to me. I don't know why, but you know, so. That's why you can recognize that you're a character. Yeah, no? well, that's why people tend to. That's why people like that with those characteristics tend to be able to go a little further mm. in whether it be debauchery or in successful in business, right? right? So I should have really focused on business instead of debauchery. But any regrets from uh, from this life? So regrets. I didn't get a lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, if I had just stayed on the straight and narrow. I would have been way ahead in the end, and um, and still had a still had the ability to utilize my training to have a nice, comfortable retirement life with with work. You know, so now I'm out on disability. I, I hurt my neck really badly. People don't notice it, but I have a hard time turning my neck. So, but but the so so the regrets are that I should have made a lot more money than I did. Of course, I'm being funny, but not really. So if I made a lot more money than I did, we wouldn't be worried about things, right? Of course. But the reality is it's you know, the consequences are just so severe. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish that I had gotten my pension like Kenny did and, and then never did any time like Kenny did. So uh, I wish that there were better mentors in the police department. Like a guy like me should be a mentor in the police department right. in some ways, right? Because if you want to turn up a fucked up, do what I did. You know, so those are some of the roles that I wish I could be involved in today. Uh, but the, the police departments tend to turn their back on me because I'm the ugly part of right. policing that, they, that, that that's real and that can be real, that you hope that it isn't. But one little scandal, a half the size of mine, can destroy your whole reputation of a police department. So I've been trying to reach out to police departments so that I can get to the younger... Uh, not even, not necessarily recruits, but more like the guy in the three, four-year term where he thinks he's got it all down now and he thinks he's a street cop now and now he can 
loosen up on his on his on a, on, a, on a regiment of of your function that we, they forget that they're public servants. You know, it's all it becomes all about them. Meaning me, it became all about me. I wasn't there to serve the public anymore. I was there to serve me, and you lose that sense of it as you get more and more time under your belt. A rookie come out of the academy, he's like, you know, he's like, eh, he's all squared away. You know? But when you get four or five years in the street and you've, you've made arrests, you've gotten fights, you, you've come out the other end of it, now you're all salty. And you forget, and then all of a sudden it becomes about you now. So. And as a father, have you, you know, because I think it's also really important um, for all those people that have gone to jail and come out and they haven't seen their kids, how, have you been able to, to to sit down and talk with them about everything? Do they resent you? Do they, you know, do they wish that you know things had happened differently? Is there any shame or how do you how do you you know address that with them? Right. So, first of all, you never try to be the the father or the dad to children that you didn't raise, right? Mm. You never try to do that. So, at least from my process of how what I, I said, look, uh, I'll be your friends for, and then maybe I can be your father. I may be your father, but I'm not your dad, and uh, and maybe I can be one day. Mm. So let's see how we can make this work. You know, I, the, I said I said I, I love you, so I'll always show you love, but I ain't got no fucking money for you. I'll tell you right now, okay? So if you come to me with a problem, I'll help you with it as best I can. But I'm, but this is the first time I come home. You know, mm -hmm. thirteen years, like twelve years past. My son was in kindergarten, and then he was going to college. So my other son was two and he was going in ninth or tenth grade when I came home mm -hmm. so I wasn't I couldn't be their dad there's no, there's no way so I be, told him I'm here for you if you need me you can call me uh, at any time or any, on any notice but I'm not your dad yet but I'd like to be your dad one day so hopefully we can get there you know because last thing you know a teen kid or, or a young man going off to college needs is some asshole stepping back in his life who hasn't been there and means nothing to them. You mean nothing to them, like absolutely nothing. In the back of their mind and in their heart, they're, they're wishing for something, but you have to earn that. Mm -hmm. So that's a process that took me a while to do, and, 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 and I think that it's, it worked. I think it's worked. To wrap things up, how do you hope, I mean, I hope another you know, long life ahead of you, but how do you hope to be remembered? Do you ever think about legacy, the legacy yeah, of so, Mike Dowd? So when I read the obituaries, I, I think about legacies, you know? Uh, I, I, it's not going to be a pretty one. I'm certain. Uh, I'm, I'm certain to that. But uh, you know, so that that's one of the reasons why I try to give back a little bit. Why? What? What? what I come on a show mm -hmm. like this so I can share, and while we we can be funny and we can talk about the craziness, the reality is, I, I want to have made a difference somewhere. And I, I, they say I made a difference in in some of the policing. I added a whole new bureau to the police department. What <laughs> well, was the laws? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a few things that I actually have could get credit for <laughs> if they roll the credits. The doubt helped change this, whatever. But, you know, I, I'd like to be able to be known for helping bridge the police community gap in some way because it's nothing better than someone who's been there and done both, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like, catch me if you can. Didn't the right. guy teach the FBI how to, uh, how to catch him? You know, so those are the things that I've strived for and have tried to accomplish. I've just met a lot of resistance mm -hmm. because the name is too big and too bad. For the who the you know for the message, but I have done some work with fire departments, with other police departments, with some corrections departments throughout the country, and you know people often on the side contact me, you know for advice and, and yeah. quite a bit, quite a few police officers contact me about that type. I'm going through this, I'm going through that. How do you handle it? What do you think? You know, 
well, what I think is you should be doing the right thing, you know? All right. People can follow you on Instagram and Twitter at the Mike Dowd. You have a website, themikedowd.com. Yeah. Anything else you want to plug for the people? No, not right now. We're, we're working on a movie and um, a TV series possibly. But it, those things take a lot of time, I hear, and a lot of money. So if you want to donate. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, if, and, if they, and if they haven't watched the, the 7-5 documentary, of course, that is uh, really all, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, yeah. I would say probably 20, 30 million people have seen it. It's, uh, I, I don't know. It's crazy. The numbers it's on. crazy. I, I, yeah, because once one person sees it, he has 10 of his friends see it. Exactly. I mean, I don't, I don't, if you have 10 friends. <laughs> Mike, it's been uh, truly a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on my show. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy life. But um, to hear from people like you, and again, we, we need people like you so that we can know the other side of it. And uh, I appreciate the time and I uh, wish you nothing but the best in this uh Next slide. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to share my story. I just uh, like, I'll leave it off with just do the best you can, you know, and, and, and try to have something positive come out of a bad situation. Beautiful. Thanks.